This morning is going to be from Daniel 9. But before that, I think it's really good to get a bit of context in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 9 is really a response uh, to an earlier chapter, chapter 8. And when Daniel receives this vision in Daniel 8, he is... uh, He's in, the final, in uh, some of the final years of King Belshazzar. And then when we read chapter 9, we read he's now in the kingdom of Medo-Persia. It's very interesting. Daniel is actually, he slowly gets to see part of the fulfillment of the prophecies God has given to him. The, the nation of Babylon falls and now Daniel gets to live in the next empire uh, of Medo-Persia. But in Daniel 8, he's still living in the time of Babylon. Um, And we'll just read verses 9 to 14, because here we meet a character uh, that is familiar to us. We've already come across this character in the prophecies of Daniel before, the little horn. He made an appearance in Daniel 7, and what what we're told about him is he persecutes God's people. He seeks to change times and laws. Um, He speaks uh, boastfully and makes claims uh, to wanting to usurp God himself. And now Daniel 8 is going to give us a little bit more information about how the little horn is going to try and do that. Daniel 7 tells us his actions. Daniel 8 is going to tell us in more clarity how the little horn is going to try and go about this. So in verse 9 is where we see him appear. It says, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? The giving of both the sanctuary and the host To be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So Daniel, he he sees these beasts, and then we're told in verse 9, he sees from them arises this little horn, and the little horn uh, does a number of things to try and persecute God's people and try and usurp, try and take over the position of God himself. So, for example, The very first thing uh, we're told is he aspires to reach to heaven. Uh, This this little horn tries to reach up to heaven. And this is the exact same ambition that we read of uh, in passages like Isaiah 14 uh, and Ezekiel 28 of Lucifer, Satan, wanting to aspire to the very throne of God, wanting to usurp God in his place. So already we're getting an indication there's some similarities between the little horn and Satan. They've got a commonality in their aspiration to reach heaven, the place where God is. Then it says he exalts himself as high as the prince 
of hosts. That's very interesting. Another time we're told of this title, the Prince of Hosts, is when an angel or it says the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua. And uh, when Joshua meets him, he falls on his face and the angel tells him to take off his sandals because he is on holy ground. This is the exact same way that God interacted with Moses. When Moses was at the burning bush, he was instructed to take off his sandals because he was treading on holy ground. So that angel of the Lord that Joshua spoke to is the same person as Moses spoke to at the burning bush. This is uh, God coming down to speak to these people. So Prince of Hosts is a title that belongs to God. And yet now this little horn is saying, well, I'd like to exalt myself up to that same title. He's trying to aspire to be on the same level as God. Then we're told he takes away the daily or the daily sacrifices. Now, it is important to note the word sacrifice isn't there in uh, the original Hebrew. It only says daily, but they're essentially referencing the same thing. So daily sacrifices is a perfectly uh, accurate thing to say. But it's good to remember that Daniel wrote, he takes away the daily or the daily sacrifices. So why is it that the little horn is trying to take away the daily? Well, when we look at what Jesus does, Jesus takes away the need for uh, sacrifices of blood and goats. He instead uh, sacrifices or gives up his own blood, the, the, the blood of the sacrifice that he gave in the heavenly sanctuary. And so the little horn is trying to get in the way of Jesus' mediation in the heavenly sanctuary. He's trying to put an end to the ministry of what Jesus is doing. And so he, it says he throws down the sanctuary from heaven down to earth. And it's very interesting that the little horn did exactly that. It decided uh, to make it so that if you wanted forgiveness of sin, going directly to God wasn't good enough. There had to be a, an earthly mediation. There had to be, you had to go through a human power in order to receive forgiveness from God. And so it says he uses an army to oppose the daily. There are, uh, there's this contingent that works on behalf of the little horn to help him out uh, in his ambition of opposing the high priestly ministry that Jesus uh, has for you and I. And then it says he tramples on the truth. He tramples and casts down truth. And we know that for a long time, the truth of the sanctuary was, in fact, suppressed. It was trodden down. Uh, the, the beautiful um, truth that Jesus stands in the heavenly sanctuary for you and I was for a long time tried to be neglected and suppressed as much as possible. So this little horn, he's quite a... Uh, and a very intense character, and he goes to very extreme measures to try and oppose the ministry, the, the priestly ministry, which Jesus has for us. And so Daniel's looking at this, and he's rightfully quite disturbed. He looks at the fact that it looks like the little horn is winning out. Uh, the little horn seems to be successful in trampling out the truth of the sanctuary. And so the question is asked, well, how long is this going to go on for? And the angel replies, 2,300 days, or as we understand, 2,300 prophetic years. And then that's it. 
That's all the detail that's given about these 2,300 days. Later on, uh, uh, Daniel is given more detail about some of the other beasts he sees. But there's not really any more detail given on these 2,300 days in this vision. Daniel's kind of left alone in the dark for a bit. But as we're going to see, God doesn't leave him there. God is going to elaborate on this unique vision that he gave to him. It's a very clever trick of Satan's, isn't it? That he, he doesn't want for you and I, for, for repentant sinners, to feel that they can go directly to God to find forgiveness for sin. The, the thing about God is he can't be bribed, he can't be corrupted, he's a perfect, just judge, and he's also merciful and forgiving. So if we want to go for forgiveness of sins, God is the best person to go to. Human beings, on the other hand, were very easily corruptible, very easily bribed. We'll very often do things uh, in our own kind of self-interest. So Satan was very clever in trying to take uh, people's attention away from God's heavenly sanctuary and trying to focus people on on an earthly solution, saying, hey, uh, don't go to God. Uh, You know, you need to find forgiveness or absolution in a human means. But it's a beautiful, wonderful truth that we have that we can go directly to God. I think of uh, Hebrews chapter 4, where we're told, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a beautiful truth, isn't it? That we can come to the throne of God in time of need to find mercy and grace. And why is that? The other verses tell us it's because Jesus is our high priest. He is working in the heavenly sanctuary for you and I. And because he does that, we can come to the throne of grace in time of need. So Daniel's prayer, uh, Daniel, he, he goes for a certain period of time not fully understanding what this vision about the, the temple and the sanctuary was all about. What's, it, uh, what's the ultimate fulfillment of all of this? And then in Daniel chapter 9, we get a bit more, of a, uh, a bit more exposition as to what this vision is all about. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, Daniel's now living in the time of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, And it says in Daniel 9, verse 1 In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel, he says, I've been reading the books of the prophets. Specifically, he says, I've been reading the book of Jeremiah. And he says, Jeremiah says there's 70 years for us to be in exile. And then God's going to bring us home. We've been in Babylon. We're now in Persia. But God said it's only going to last 70 years before he sends us home. He restores and uh, builds up Jerusalem and the people. And Daniel's looking at this going, time's getting pretty close. 
and he's, he's wondering, and we're going to see in his prayer to God, he starts appealing to God, God, you promised through Jeremiah that we'd be able to go home. The time's coming up soon. Please be faithful to that promise. Now, it's interesting as well. What did the prophet Jeremiah specifically say about these 70 years? Well, Second Chronicles gives us a little bit of detail. Uh, this is some of the final verses in the book of Chronicles, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. And it says, Those who escaped from the sword, he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, and his general Nebuzadan, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So Jeremiah, he adds this element. He says, the people are going to be in exile in Babylon for 70 years to allow the land to have its Sabbath rest or to fulfill the rest of the land, fulfill 70 years. Now, this is referring to a law that God had given ages ago um, at Mount Sinai and then uh, retold uh, in the book of Deuteronomy that the land every seventh year was to have a year of rest. Um, There was to be no harvesting, uh, no putting in new uh, crops. The land was to have rest so that it would be more fruitful uh, in the years to come. Very similar to how every seventh day, man was to take a rest in order for him to have time to, to recharge, so to speak. So God also was thinking of the land and he said, Every seventh year, I want you to give the land a rest. Give it a break. Give it some time to heal and get back and uh, get nourishment again. And so Jeremiah says the people are going to be in exile for as long as it takes for the land to get its Sabbath rest. And he says it's 70 years. Now, if the people, if if the land needs Sabbath rest for 70 years and they were supposed to do it every seventh year, That means the people had neglected to keep this law for 490 years. 490 years the people had neglected to give the land its Sabbath rest. And if we go from the time that Israel was deported from uh, Jerusalem through uh, and add 490 years, it gives you 1087 BC. That's the time when Samuel was still a judge. So from the time Samuel was judged and just before Saul was made king, all the way through to the destruction of Jerusalem, the people had neglected to give the Sabbath land its rest. That's a very long time for the people to have ignored this very important law that God had given to them. But it really goes to show how slow to anger and how patient God is. He gave them 490 years, almost 500 years to give the land its Sabbath rest and also deal with all the other problems uh, in the nation that the major and minor prophets spoke of. So God was incredibly patient. He was incredibly slow to anger when it came to the Jewish people. It really goes to uh, show us and give us an appreciation of how patient God is with sinners who just keep doing the same wrong thing over and over again. Now, the 490 
you're probably already uh, thinking ahead. It's very interesting, isn't it, that God uh, sent the people into exile after he'd given them already a 490-year period of probation, so to speak. He gave them 490 years to get their act together before he sent them into exile. And so Daniel's looking at this and he says, look, this, the land has almost finished its Sabbath rest. It's almost had its 70 years. Is God going to be faithful to his promise to return the people to the land? That's the question that Daniel has. And so Daniel, he, he gets on his knees, he prays to God, and he actually, he speaks on behalf of his people and he says, God, you please forgive us for the multitude of sins that we've committed against you. And then he, he pleads with God. He says, God, it's, your, it's your, in your character and nature to be merciful and forgiving. Please look over the things that we've done and please be faithful to the promise you made and restore us back to Jerusalem. And I love just the, the closing verses, uh, the, the closing sentences of his prayer. He says, oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Just verse 18. I love that Daniel says, we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Daniel here is appealing to the merciful character of God. And another thing he brings out is he says, God, we're supposed to be your people. We're supposed to be representatives for you. And when people look at our city and it's in ruins and it's destroyed, the people uh, think badly of you. We're supposed to uh, show that you bless those who follow you, and yet we're destroyed, we're desolate. And so the nations are looking on going, this God is useless. He can't do anything. He can't even protect his own people. So he says, for the sake of your name, God, for the sake of your reputation, please let us uh, return so that we can do a better job, that we can be better ambassadors and representatives for you to the nations of the world. Daniel's prayer is so powerful because he's standing in between his people and God And he pleads on their behalf. He asks them, he says, God, please forgive the sins that our nation has committed. That got us here into exile in the first place. And I think Daniel's an incredible model for prayer for us too, isn't he? That he stands in between those who are not in a right relationship with God and says, God, please be merciful to those who do not know you or who are actively rebelling against you. And this is a type of prayer we should also implement into our lives. I'm sure uh, all of us have those in our lives that we dearly love who do not yet know God or perhaps are antagonistic towards God. What if we were to do what Daniel did and stand in between them and say, God, please show mercy to this person that I love. God, please send your Holy Spirit to work on their heart Please convict them so that they can come into the truth of the knowledge of you. What if we can pray like Daniel did for those that we love, that God would show them mercy and bring them into a knowledge of who he is? 
So Daniel's giving this prayer, pleading on behalf of his people. And then we're told the angel Gabriel appears to him. Now, Gabriel was also in his vision in Daniel chapter 8. So already uh, our kind of senses should be going, okay, there's something, something unique going on here. Gabriel's only appeared in one other vision so far. That was in Daniel chapter 8. Now he appears in Daniel chapter 9. And I love what uh, Gabriel says to Daniel in verse uh, 23. He says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. What a beautiful title Gabriel gives to Daniel, isn't it? I think we would all love to have a title such as that, to be greatly beloved by God. And I think it's evident why God loved Daniel so much. It was because he was a righteous man. Uh, We see in the stories prior to this, he stands by his principles. He's a testimony to the God, uh, to the one true God in a a culture filled with idols. And here he is pleading on behalf of his people. And he does so in a humble way. He says, God, I come before you not because of how good we are, but because of your richness in mercy. I think it's abundantly clear why God described Daniel as greatly beloved to him. And so then, as a result of this, because Daniel is greatly beloved, God has sent Gabriel to now explain the vision. Gabriel says, I've come to explain the vision. What vision is he referring to? Well, we see... Gabriel was present in the vision of Daniel chapter 8. And remember, Daniel didn't get a full explanation about the sanctuary and the little horn and uh, the sanctuary, uh, the 2,300 days. So Gabriel's coming here. He's saying, I'm here to explain the vision that we spoke about last time. I'm here to give you more clarity. And verses 24 to 27 give us detail about what, uh, what that's all about. So Gabriel says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it all shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So it's a pretty in-depth description that Gabriel um, gives a message onto for Daniel. And remember that the context that Daniel receives this vision is as he's praying on behalf of his people. So the first thing Gabriel says in verse 24 is 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. This is directly 
uh, referencing the prayer that Daniel had about the restoration of the people uh, of Judah, the nation of Israel. And so he says 70 weeks are determined, or another way uh, to say it is cut off. 70 weeks are determined or cut off for your people. Now the question is cut off from what? It would be the 2,300 days that's referenced in Daniel 8. So Gabriel comes, he says, I'm here to explain to you the 2,300 days. Of those 2,300 days, 70 weeks are cut off for you and your people. So God is now beginning to describe that he's going to give the nation of Israel another, another shot. He's going to give them another chance. He gave them 490 years before he uh, sent them into exile. Now he's going to give them another time of probation to get their act together uh, and it, because he's willing to give them a second chance. Really, this is well beyond their second chance. But I think you understand what I'm saying. So God is wanting to give the Jewish people another uh, time to, to uh, come to him and be good ambassadors, be good representatives uh, to the surrounding nations. So the question then is, okay, well, when does uh, these 70 weeks, uh, or as we understand, uh, 70 weeks, seven days in 70 weeks, which will give you 490 days, and we understand days to be years of prophecy. So 490 years, we're getting another 490-year period. He gave them 490 before sending them into exile. Now, after exile, he's going to give them another 490 before their time is up. And Gabriel says that the timing of this is going to be from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, thankfully, history attests to us this was in 457 BC. The Persian king uh, Artaxerxes decreed that the Jews were to go return and rebuild Jerusalem. So their 490 years begin in 457 BC. From there, they have 490 years to what? Accomplish all of the things in verse 24. Gabriel says, the people in the holy city have 490 years to do all of these things in verse 24. Finish transgression, reconciliation for iniquity, seal up vision and prophecy. Gabriel says it's going to be 490 years. And then he says... From then till the coming of the Messiah is going to be 62 and 7 weeks or 69 weeks. 69 weeks gives us 483 days or 483 years. So we're looking for the Messiah to arrive 483 years after the command to go and restore Jerusalem. And those 483 years take us all the way to the year 27 AD. And of course, what an incredible miracle it was when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River in 27 AD. This was the time when Jesus began his ministry as the Messiah for the entire world. Now, as I said, to us, to probably most of us in the room, this is a prophecy that's familiar to us. Uh, we may have heard uh, many a time, and yet uh, it really goes without saying that this is something incredibly impressive, isn't it? That God knew with such specificity the arrival and the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Um, this is one of those things where I almost 
um, I almost feel sad that I take prophecy for granted. Uh, you know, growing up in an Adventist household and just knowing this from a very young age, I almost wish I could hear it for the first time in my adult life and just be blown away at how impressive the prophecies of Scripture are. God knew the precise time when Jesus would come. Jesus, God also knew the best and most appropriate time to send Jesus for his ministry. And so I think a, a, a point of encouragement for us is if God knew with such specificity when he would come for his first coming, can't we have assurance that God has a, another precise time in mind for his second coming? Now, God says that he knows the day and the hour. And whatever that day and hour is that God knows, can't we trust that he has picked the perfect time? That that will be the perfect time for Jesus to come and take back with him those who believe in him to heaven. You know, as, as time goes on, things are going to slowly become more difficult for God's people. Uh, and as that the, the difficulties and the trials and persecutions get more difficult. Perhaps we'll wonder, God, why haven't you come yet? This would be a really good time to swoop in and help out your people. But God knows when the exact right time will be for his second coming. And so I want to encourage us that perhaps during those times where we're questioning and wrestling, as things get more difficult, we go, God, why haven't you yet come? Why have we not seen your second coming yet? that we can have trust that God knows the exact right time to bring his people to heaven with him. He knew the right time for his first coming. He'll do the same for his second. So that takes us up to 69 of the 70 weeks. We've got one week left. And what happens in the last week or these last seven years? We're told uh, there's three main events. The Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. He will confirm a covenant with many. And in the middle of the week, he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering. This middle period takes us from 27 to 34 AD. And in the middle of the week, we find the year 31 AD. So is it true that in the middle of the week, these events took place? Jesus was crucified, died, and resurrected in the year 31 AD. And Jesus was indeed cut off or killed. He was cut off and killed for the sake of others. Not for himself, but for you and for me. To pay the price that you and I could not for our own sin. And in the middle of that week, as he died on the cross, he did in fact bring an end to sacrifice and offering. There was no need for anyone to bring a lamb or a goat to the temple anymore because Jesus was the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. There's no need for the blood of lambs and bulls anymore in an earthly sanctuary when Jesus would go on to give his blood in the heavenly sanctuary. So through his death, Jesus does, in fact, he, he's cut off for the sake of others he does bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and he creates a new covenant. The old covenant uh, had reached its expiration date. A new covenant was brought in by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And so it's incredible that when we look at what is to happen in the 70 weeks, Jesus accomplishes all of them. So that was in the year 31 AD. Jesus accomplishes all of these requirements. He does finish transgression and make an end to sin. Because of his death, sin has lost its power and its grasp on people like you and me. We are able to be free from the slavery of sin and be able to be free from the debt, the penalty of sin, because Jesus paid that debt and paid that penalty. He's made reconciliation between us and God. Prior to this, we could not come before God. We were in a relationship of enmity with God. And now Christ brings in reconciliation. He brings in everlasting righteousness because it's his righteousness which is everlasting. His righteousness which he gives to you and to me so that we can be declared as legally innocent before the throne of God. He seals up vision and prophecy by being the one to fulfill the vision and the prophecy. And it says to anoint the most holy. There are two ways that some approach this most holy. Some uh, believe it refers to Jesus as the Messiah. And of course, we see Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. The most holy anointed at the baptism of Christ. Another way some look at it is the most holy is very often referenced, used in reference to the most holy place in the tabernacle or in the temple, the sanctuary. And to anoint it was to... Uh, Indicate the beginning of its ministry. Just as Jesus was anointed at the beginning of his ministry, so also the temple and the sanctuary were anointed when they were beginning uh, the ministry there. And we know that Christ, when he ascended to heaven, he began his ministry in the, in the heavenly sanctuary. So whether it refers to an anointing in the heavenly sanctuary, it may refer as well to the anointing of Jesus himself. We see here that in the life of Jesus, the anointing of the most holy is indeed fulfilled. All of these things that God said uh, were to happen before the end of the 70 weeks, Jesus fulfills. It is, that's incredible because if you think about it, it says 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to do all of these things. Now, I think it would be pretty difficult for any human being to do any of these, to fulfill transgression or to bring in everlasting righteousness surely uh, none of us are going to be the one to bring in everlasting righteousness or to seal up vision and prophecy so God said during this probationary period this is what I expect to be done but then God's the one who does everything for them he's the one who says God comes down to earth and he says I'll do it all for you I'll accomplish all of these things on your behalf and as Jesus does all of these things, the people that Daniel prays for and those in that holy city, how do they respond to what Jesus does? They say, we don't want you. We're not interested in you doing this for us. We're not interested in you fulfilling the words of the prophecy in Daniel 9. In fact, when Jesus is brought to trial, the people say, perhaps some of the saddest words that you find in the Bible, which is, he's not our king. Jesus is not our king. We have no king but Caesar. They decided to worship a, an earthly ruler 
rather than their true king who had done all of these things for them, who they'd condemned to death and was going to accomplish all of these fulfillments of prophecy in Daniel 9. There's a parable Jesus told that illustrates this where he says, imagine uh, a landlord has a, uh, a vineyard and he puts tenants there and he sends a messenger and the tenants beat up the messenger. So he sends another messenger. They beat up that guy as well. Then he, descends, I'll send, I'll, he decides, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. And they don't just beat him up, they kill him. And Jesus, he says, what do you think that landlord should do with those tenants? And the people give the right response. They say, well, I'd get rid of them. Jesus says, that's exactly right. The landlord will get rid of those tenants and put in new ones who will be good stewards of what they uh, have been given to take care of. And that was the sad reality of what happened to Daniel and his people. The ultimate rejection of this was when they killed the first martyr of the Christian faith, Stephen, in the year 34 AD. 34 AD was the final year or the final day in that long prophecy. And in that year, God finally had to say, I'm removing these tenants. I'm going to put in new tenants. God gave 490 years before the exile and he gave another 490 afterwards. And sadly, the people still rejected God. But the good news is that these new tenants include everyone. That everyone is able to enter into this new covenant which God created in the middle of that week. This is open to both Jew and Gentile. There's no one who is excluded from this community should they come with sincere faith and repentance before God. Perhaps like Daniel this morning, there's people in your life who you know have abandoned God or just have never accepted him to be the Lord of their life. And it's a very difficult thing we wrestle with, isn't it? Particularly when it's a a family member or a, a dear friend of ours that we desperately want to see in the kingdom of God with us. And yet we know that the current trajectory of their life is not pointing in the direction of that kingdom of God. I want to encourage you to take the same attitude which Daniel did and pray without ceasing for, the, for them on their behalf. Yeah. Intercede on their behalf before God and plead for them. Ask God to show mercy and forgiveness, to reveal himself in a way that's going to open up their eyes. Pray for God to send the Holy Spirit to open up their hearts. There's not one of us who wants to see every person we love in heaven with us. And I think beginning with the model of prayer Daniel gives to us here in Daniel 9 is a fantastic way to start. Praying and interceding on behalf of those that we love. Perhaps, like in Daniel's prophecy, the time for those that we love has already expended. Perhaps we know someone deeply and their probation has already closed. Daniel feels that same pain that perhaps you do as well. Daniel pleaded with God to be merciful to his nation, and God was merciful, and yet in spite of that mercy, they still rejected God. Maybe you know someone who's done the same. You've pleaded for them. You've asked God to show mercy. God has revealed himself and shown mercy, and yet 
that person has still rejected God. I want to encourage you, though, to still not lose hope. Because if Daniel 8 and 9 have anything to tell us, it's God is patient, forgiving, and long-suffering. God gave 490 years and then another 490 years before he was willing to cut off the people of Israel. The other thing that should encourage us is that God is the most just judge in the world in addition to being merciful. God was right when he judged Israel and said, sorry, you've got to go to Babylon. And God was right when he said, Babylon, your time is up. Time for me to Persia and me to Persia to Greece and so on. God was exactly right in his judgment and he gave a proportionate judgment to each nation as they deserved. So if the fate of our loved ones, who perhaps didn't know God, if it were in the hands of human judge, I think we'd all be quite worried. Because again, human judges can be bribed, they can be corrupted, they can be easily manipulated, but God is the ultimate, truly just judge. Perhaps a comforting thought is that God knows the hearts of those we love even better than we do. We'll never be able to know the the private thoughts and the hearts intimately of people in a way that God does. And God's going to ensure that he takes everything into account when he comes to judge every one of us. I believe there's comfort and encouragement to be had knowing that those we love are ultimately in the hands of both a just and merciful God. Contemplating God's forgiveness should also instill in us an attitude of forgiveness too. It's so interesting, this 490 number keeps appearing throughout Scripture. So you remember Peter asks Jesus, he goes, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? He goes, is seven enough? Jesus goes, seven? How about 70 times seven or 490 times? Interesting that that number is used, the same number that God gave to offer his forgiveness to the nation of Israel. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, you need to show forgiveness to others the same amount that God has shown to you. If God can forgive his people for 490 years, 490 times, can't you do the same for those who have sinned against you? And surely the debt that, uh, that we have to God is far greater than any debt that someone has to us. Looking at Daniel 9 should really instill in us an attitude of wanting to forgive others just as God has forgiven us. And finally, Daniel 8 and 9 encourage us in this way. It encourages us in knowing that Jesus is coming soon to bring about his everlasting kingdom and that those who believe in him will be taken to heaven. When Jesus first arrived, God had already laid out the exact time in the prophecy of Daniel. God was precise and his timing was perfect. And if his timing was perfect the first, why should we not expect it to be so for his second coming as well? Until that time, let's push forward in our faith and commit our lives to the cross of Jesus. Let's intercede in prayer for those who we want to see in heaven with us. Let's forgive the debts of sin which people owe to us, just as God has forgiven you, yours and I, our debts to him. 
And let us approach boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy and forgiveness. Let us spread this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection right on time and his soon return right on time.